Good evening, everyone. It is so good to be starting a brand new series tonight in the book of Philemon. Um, now, before we get into this power-packed book, um, I was thinking this week about um, some of my favorite shows and movies that had to do with like a wise sage mentor individual who kind of continues to like kind of like be that nagging voice in the life of the individuals. You might think of like Nick Fury in the MCU. Um, for me, who I think of is Mr. Feeney in the show Boy Meets World. Um, they, oh, y'all are my people. Love it. Um, now, if, if, if you have never seen the light of Boy Meets World, um, there, there is still hope for you yet. Disney Plus, right after the gathering tonight, go check it out. I personally encourage you to start at like season three if you really want to get into it again in high school, all right? All right, so Boy Meets World, um, the story of Corey and Topanga and Sean, these three students, and their journey from childhood into adulthood. They start in middle school and go all the way through college years together, if you are not including Girl Meets World, which I am not for the sake of this analogy. Uh, and, um, and then you have Mr. Feeney, who is this teacher who starts with them in middle school and somehow continues with them all the way through college, because that's what happens in school. Um, and so, so you have Feeney, and he is like this unrelenting presence in their life. But not just his presence is unrelenting, but his challenges are also unrelenting. He is constantly challenging them and giving them wisdom and, and, and such great knowledge, moving them towards maturity. But even in that, he's like an unrelenting voice. And that's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about like these wise old sages, these, these individuals who spend time mentoring and pouring into individuals and continue to draw you and call you into maturity. Now, when I think about my journey with Jesus, I think about the day when I was 19 years old that I began to follow after him. And in that moment, I, I surrendered um, my desires, my dreams. I gave him my faith everything that I could in that moment. And to be honest, it wasn't like this super peaceful moment. There was peace there, but it was terrifying because I knew what I was handing over to him and all those things would be the death of me. It was terrifying. It was beautiful. It was redemptive. It was the gospel on display in my life. It was so good. And he began from that moment on to begin to root out some of the darkness that had been long buried within me rooting at the, the heart of my sexual addiction. He began to transform my desires to become more patient, kind, loving, understanding. Now, those are not things that I have mastered by any stretch of the imagination. But if you get to know me and you're like, wow, you really need to grow in those areas, I would agree with you. But if you had known me at 19 years old, you would have been like, oh my gosh, this guy's a knucklehead. I was and still am in a lot of ways. But but he began to transform me in those ways by the power of his spirit. He changed the desires of my heart, even because one of the, the scariest things was handing over the idea that I could be called into vocational ministry to become a pastor. And I was terrified of doing that. And so I wanted to keep God at arm's length. But when I handed that over to him, he began to even transform the desires of my heart where now that's like, this is my dream. This is my passion. There's nothing I would love to do more than to, do this to shepherd a community. Now, a lot of that has been beautiful, but there's a lot of pain that has gone on in all of it. 
And I remember after a couple years of this, this gnawing and this, this growth opportunity season that I was just sitting there and I was like asking God, all right, so here's the deal. You've been challenging me pretty hardcore for a couple years now. Maybe we can get like a timeout. Like, 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 have I grown enough for now? And the, the answer that I got was no. I was gonna continually be challenged. Like he was gonna be peace and love and rest for my soul. But also he's gonna call me into greater things in my heart and in my soul as he transformed me from the inside out. But that is where I discovered that the heart of God is quite similar to Mr. Feeney. That, it, that, he, that his heart is this unrelenting presence. It's this unrelenting challenge in the best way imaginable. Have you ever experienced this with God? Perhaps you're currently in a season where you've been trying to hold God at arm's length. And in which case, you're probably not gonna like where this message goes tonight. So here's some questions for you to think through. I want you to really, as I ask these questions, think through them. Is there a perceived right that you have? Is there, maybe it's a hobby you enjoy. Maybe it's a habit you partake in. Maybe it's a dream that you have refused to allow God to have any room in. Maybe it's, some, maybe it's something sinful and broken. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just something that's quite neutral or even it's a good thing, but you've been afraid to see what God might do with it. What have you been holding? If God challenged you to hand that thing over to him, would you listen? Would you listen? See, this is the central question that's at the heart of the shortest book in the Bible that we're gonna be reading tonight. The letter to an individual named Philemon. Now we're gonna be in it for two weeks and make no mistake, this, um, this reminds me a lot of like the one time in my life that I took a shot of wheatgrass. Um, if you've ever taken a shot of wheatgrass, like it, it's very, very powerful. It packs a punch in a little tiny glass, right? And, and it leaves an aftertaste. It's gonna last for like weeks on end. That's the book of Philemon, y'all. Um, it's gonna be so good. It packs a punch. And this question, will you... Will you heed the unrelenting call of the gospel in your life? Now, a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago, we were in the book of Colossians. And when we were there, we were introduced to a few individuals at the end of that book who had connections to the church in Colossae. Um, and uh, by the way, you might have one of these. We mentioned it last week. Um, these are the scripture journals. I think we still have a few left in the lobby that you can take as you're leaving tonight. Um, it has a book of Colossians and the book of Philemon both in it. If you happen to have one, we're gonna be on page 19 of, uh, I'm sorry, 19, 20, page 20 um, in the scripture journal. Otherwise, we're gonna be in Philemon. It's one chapter long. So if you land there, you, congratulations, you found it. Um, it's not too far away. All right, so when we're in the book of Colossians, we were introduced to a few different individuals, a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras was likely the guy who planted this church in Colossae, um, which is this place in ancient Rome, kind of on the outskirts. And he was now imprisoned with Paul, the apostle Paul, the guy that wrote that letter and this letter in Rome. And he had been telling Paul all the good things that God had been doing in the life of the church in Colossae. Now, 
This letter was carried by another guy, a guy named Tychicus. Now, Tychicus was the letter carrier, and his job was to go in front of the church and to read the letter, to answer any questions that might be had, all that kind of stuff, to really be the voice of Paul on Paul's behalf with this letter. But it, it also mentioned in the letter of Colossians that there was another individual who's going to be going with Tychicus, a guy named Onesimus. Now, he doesn't get a lot. Uh, he gets one particular shout out. Paul calls him in that letter, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. But he leaves it at that because Onesimus is gonna be the focal point of this letter that we're getting into tonight. So there was another letter that went with the letter to the church in Colossae, which is this letter that was addressed instead of to the church as a whole, it was addressed specifically to one individual, a guy named Philemon, but was to be read in front of the entire church together. So Philemon and Onesimus, well, they go way back. And we're gonna discover that tonight in this letter. They go way back because the relationship wasn't that they were friends, they weren't frenemies, they weren't brothers, they weren't even mild acquaintances. Their relationship was that between a master and his slave. So that brings us into the difficult of where we enter into tonight. Now, typically the way we carve up a book of the Bible is that we go bit by bit, section by section. Um, so for a letter this short, we probably cut it in two typically. But instead for this book, we're gonna be doing something a little bit different. Instead of viewing it from the lens of two halves, we're gonna be looking at it from the two different perspectives who, of hearers of this letter that are being read to in this church. So let me set the stage a little bit and then we'll get right into the letter. So imagine for a moment that we find ourselves in Colossae. We find ourselves in Colossae where it's night. It is, um, we are sitting outside in a courtyard, all kind of sit on cushions. And Tychicus is up front and he is reading this letter. Now the house that we're sitting in is the house of Philemon, the guy who this letter is being written to. And right next to Tychicus is Onesimus, the guy who accompanied him with him, the guy who is the slave of this property owner. So you could just feel some of the tension that might arise in this moment. And tonight we're gonna to be listening from the perspective of Philemon. Next week, we'll go from the, the perspective of Onesimus, the one who is the bondservant in this scenario. And we're going to discover the gospel's unrelenting challenge to each of them. So let's go ahead and start. Philemon, starting in verse one. So here he goes. He goes, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our, fel our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So, 
In this introduction piece, before we get to the big ask the request section, we find out a lot about the letter and its whole. So starting in verse three, we discover the tone of the letter, which is grace to you and peace. Now that word peace is a big word for this letter because this is the tone. This is the desire of the entire letter is that peace would arise out of this. Not like cheap peace where you, um, where you just walk away. You don't pay attention to the difficult. You just pretend that it's not there. You just avoid the elephant in the room at all costs. No, Paul is going to dig in deep. He's going to call the elephant out in the room and it's going to get real. But grace and peace. Then we also discover who it's being written to, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Aphia, our sister, who is likely Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, who is likely uh, the pastor of this church, this house church in Colossae. And then he also mentions, and the church in your house. So that is to Philemon, this church that gathers in Philemon's house. Now, what that tells us about Philemon is a few things. One, Philemon is wealthy. We know this because in the early church, they were a few hundred years away from ever owning property and being able to have anything resembling a sanctuary or a temple of any kind. So instead, they would meet in houses all across the city in little pockets. So what they would typically do is they'd find the richest people within the congregations because that would mean they would have the most space to host the most amount of people. So Philemon is hosting this gathering in his courtyard. So it's to this courtyard that this letter is being written. So this letter is being read in Philemon's home. I mean, imagine this. You have Onesimus sitting there, right? Right next to Tychicus, your legal slave. And you're getting this letter in your own house in front of all your people. This is gonna get super uncomfortable, right? In such a good way. So this letter is being read in this scenario. And then in verses four through seven, we receive the prayer of thanksgiving. Now, I want you to look at some of the language that Paul is using and understand that Paul is not using flattery. Paul doesn't do that. He, does, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, that last line, for all the saints, we're gonna come back to that in a little bit. It's so good. Um, but he is expressing the type of love and faithfulness and faith that Philemon has shown so far in his life. In other words, Philemon's not like some spiritual newbie. He has demonstrated faith and faithfulness. He is a man that has been defined and marked by the love of Jesus. He has grown in so many ways and he's actively demonstrated love for God and love for people as evidenced by what Paul's writing about him. Philemon reminds me a lot of another character in the Bible, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples and followers. Peter's story is super interesting, right? Because um, he continues to demonstrate such great faithfulness to God in such unfaithful ways. Over and over again, God calls him into great things and he makes it, but not because he's so awesome, because Jesus is so faithful. Over and over again. And, but you see Peter's growth and maturity throughout his story. From the time that he is called out of, uh, out of his vocation as a fisherman to become a fisher of men, to grow and grow and grow. I was thinking, though, specifically of the time when, when all the disciples are on a fishing boat together. They're on a boat together, and Jesus is walking on the water towards the boat, and Peter sees him, and Jesus calls and beckons him out. 
onto the waters. The faith that he has already shown, but Jesus is calling it more and more. And Peter's life only continues to demonstrate that all the way through the time that he's one of the early church leaders, that continued God's faithfulness has called him the unrelenting call of the gospel. And that's kind of like Philemon here. He has demonstrated great faithfulness, probably not perfectly, but he has demonstrated love for God and love for people. But yet Paul has a request for him, which is where we get at. Let's start in verse eight and nine. So he begins accordingly. In light of all that, in light of this prayer of thanksgiving, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. This tone changed really fast, huh? I could tell you what to do. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So first we discover Paul's authority is to command. He has the the spiritual authority to tell Philemon exactly what he should do and he would need to listen. But instead he gives him an opportunity and the opportunity he gives him is an opportunity to grow in maturity. And he does it for the sake of love. Now don't miss the beauty in this. Paul's authority and his right would dictate that he could tell a Philemon, exactly what to do. We haven't even gotten to the request part yet, right? But in doing so, he would shortchange the opportunity to give Philemon to grow in maturity. Right now, our son Asher is three years old. Um, He is no longer in the putting his fingers in the light socket phase. That's really kind of God. Um, But he is absolutely in the touch everything in the store and Um, be disobedient minimum of 15 times a day phase. Like he is solely in that phase of his threeness. And um, he is is so awesome. But yet that means that our parenting still requires a decent amount of telling him what he can and cannot do, enforcing it, rewarding him for good behavior, disciplining him based on all of that, right? Because he's three. Maturity looks different when you're three than when you're 15 or 25. And when, if Asher was 15 or 25, my hope is that I'm not telling Asher what to do all the time. That Asher is not having to run by every little decision in his life for my approval. My hope is that he is growing as, as he grows towards adulthood and towards manhood, that instead it would look a lot more like what Paul's doing here parenting him through conversation, through processing with him, through appealing to him like Paul is in this letter. Why? Because I don't want Asher to grow up to just do what I tell him to do all the time when I see him doing it. I want him to mature into the kind of man who makes God-honoring decisions more and more regularly in his life, whether me or anyone else is seeing him or not, that he would grow with this kind of integrity. And that's what Paul wants for Philemon. This is the journey of maturity. And this is what Paul is encouraging Philemon to with this request and the request that we're about to get into now. In essence, I will not enforce this, but for the sake of love, I appeal to you. So let me read for you the entire next session, the the entire request, and then we're gonna go back and we'll break it down piece by piece. Starting verse 10. So I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. 
Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So let's start again at verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Paul is imprisoned. He is not, he's not speaking in metaphors. He is saying literally like I'm, I'm in chains right now. He is imprisoned, waiting trial in front of the Caesar, and he is finding himself in Rome in this space. Now, big difference between their judicial system and ours is there is nobody else to take care of the prisoners except for family and friends. So for food, um, for clothes, for blankets, any of that kind of stuff, the state did not provide any of that in the prison system. It was provided by friends and family. So it is very likely that this is what Onesimus was doing for Paul. He was literally taking care of him. He was literally making sure he had food in his stomach. He was making sure that he had paper to write letters like this. This was what Onesimus was doing on his behalf. So What happened is that Onesimus, as we're going to kind of get to, but just to kind of set context, Onesimus had escaped in his slavery, his bond servitude, and had escaped and left and eventually made his way to Rome. When he got to Rome, he ran across Paul for whatever reasons. And in that, something happened. And what happened was he was changed. You see, let's start with this the name Onesimus. See how he says in verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. Um, the, the name Onesimus in Greek literally means useless. So he's literally saying like the one who, you know, useless, the useless, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful. Now, I don't know exactly what he is getting at in calling him useless. Maybe it's that his work ethic for whatever reason wasn't up to snuff, or maybe it's in his leaving that that proved to be quite useless for a slave owner. But for whatever reason, now as we are sitting on Philemon's cushion, we are hearing this letter. We are remembering Onesimus, our former bondservant, who may have not had the best work ethic. All of a sudden you're like, he's useful now? I remember this guy not the best worker, whatever he's thinking in that moment, but he is probably perplexed. Now, we'll continue on in the passage, but before we do get any further, I wanna talk just for a second and do a brief aside to the other elephant in the room, which is the dehumanizing institution that is being discussed here. Um, It would either be referred to as bond servitude or slavery. And it's worth noting that those are two different realities in the Roman world, um, but they are, but they, actually have the exact same Greek word. It's the word dumas. Um, Now, bond servants in the Greco-Roman world were individuals who sold themselves into servitude, typically for a specific length of time to pay off a debt that they had incurred. Slaves, on the other hand, were considered legal property with a life sentence of servitude. 
Now, if you research Roman slavery more, you will discover more nuanced differences between their version of slavery and the transatlantic African slave trade that happened here in the United States. Um, you can do that and, um, and discover so much more about the differences of those realities. But honestly, those differences are quite irrelevant when it comes to the, to the truth that any version of dehumanization that is slavery, where we are forcing bondage on another person, defies the theological reality that all humans are made to be image bearers of God. The most beautiful, the most broken, the most evil and wicked, the most righteous and idealistic human, all are made to be image bearers of God. All. So there is not a justification here of slavery. Um, And we'll get to that in just a little bit as well. But I just wanted to um, address that as we go forward. So back to Onesimus, we find out more about him. So he was formerly useless to find him, but now he's become useful in ministry to Paul. And what changed is his life. It says that he is now, that Paul now identifies himself as the father of of Onesimus, that Onesimus is now a child, a spiritual child of Paul. So he runs away from Philemon and Colossae to Paul and Paul leads him to Jesus and begins to disciple him and raise him in spiritual maturity. He raises him up in the faith. He teaches him the beauty of the gospel and it endeared Onesimus to Paul's heart. So much so that in verse, 13, verse 12, what does he say? He says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. In other words, what you do to Onesimus, you do to me. The most sensitive part of my body, that is how I am identifying him to me. And that's gonna be a refrain that he's gonna get to in just a little bit as well. Now, verses 13 and 14, he continues, I've been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So what he's getting at is I could have been very pragmatic here. I could have just kept him around and he would have just done wonderful things taking care of me. But I believed that something else could happen here, that there was an opportunity for partnership in the gospel, even in this broken situation that we're in. It'd been more beneficial for me to keep Onesimus here, but instead I'm sending him back to you. Why? For growth and maturity. So that it wouldn't be by under compulsion, but because of your incredible growth in love. I want to see you give in to the unrelenting call of the gospel in this story. I want to see you be transformed. I want to see what Jesus has for you. I want to see the work of the spirit in your life. So then verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever. Now, if you just read this verse by itself, it might sound like what Paul is saying is like, I'm trying to send back this runaway slave to you, but that's not where the story ends. Verse 16, and verse 16, Paul continues. So um, let me go back to 15 really quick, just to keep the full sentence. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever but no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Are you seeing this? Paul reframes um, Philemon and Onesimus' relationship with kingdom value. 
not only in the flesh, but in the Lord. In the flesh, there is a relational dynamic that can be redeemed by the one that is in the Lord. In other words, you are both now brothers in the family of God. And remember that part, the prayer of Thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter where he says, because I hear of your love and for the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Well, it just so happens we have a new saint to introduce you to. It's Onesimus, your beloved brother. Receive him no longer as your bondservant, but as a beloved brother. So you all are sitting on the cushion of Philemon tonight. How do you respond to that? How do you receive this request? A little more context. No one in their culture has ever treated a slave as their brother. It's never happened. In fact, there is no recorded evidence in the history of the world that I have found up to this point that there was ever a culture of abolition of slavery in any culture. Now, there's often commentary um, against both the Bible and against Paul in particular for not calling out and calling for the abolition of the slave trade um, more specifically. And that makes total sense, especially when you consider... um, when you consider some of the ways that individuals throughout the history of the world have used and butchered scripture to justify evils, including slavery, including this passage. But I had a, I had an atheist argumentation teacher my freshman year of college. And I, I, I always remembered one thing he told me. He said, you can get even the Bible to say there is no God. If you leave out the context of Psalm 14, one, where it says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Like you can get anything to say anything. And that reality is still at play. Now, the reality though, is that Paul is not calling for the abolishment of the slave trade. Instead, in this moment, in this circumstance, he is undoing the very foundation of slavery. In fact, this letter would be used 300 years later by a guy named Gregory of Nicaea, who would be the first person to ever do any literature writing for the abolishment of the slave trade. And he would use this letter as the foundational text for it. Um, Another brother in the faith, William Wilberforce in the 1700s, would later take this exact same letter and use this as the foundation for him um, going in front of British Parliament for the abolishment of the slave trade throughout the entire British Empire. It's this exact same text that would later be gone to um, by another brother in the faith, a guy named Frederick Douglass, who was an escaped um, slave himself in the Americas. And he would preach this passage and use it as also a justification for the abolishment of the slave trade because a slave is our brother, that all are image bearers of God. And for those of us who specifically have been born again into the family of God, that relational dynamic of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters trumps any, any, any relational dynamic that we could bring against one another. I'll say that again. There is no relational dynamic between followers of Jesus that should be able to divide brothers and sisters. There's not one. And it's that that Paul is rooting into here. Receive him no longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. So as we sit on Philemon's cushion in Philemon's home, hearing this message, what are you feeling? 
This is paradigm shattering. This is scandalous, but it's like scandalous like Jesus, right? Like this is the good kind where it's like, whoa, this is changing things now. It's ushering in gospel and kingdom culture into the middle of the broken Roman empire. This is good news. Now, verse 17 through 20. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So now Paul is explaining the entire real world example that they have been playing into right now. This whole Philemon Onesimus thing. This is simply an allegory for the beauty of the gospel on display. So verse 17, he is talking about partnership, partnership with Paul. As you have received me, we are, we're partners, right? He calls him, he calls him um, at the beginning of the letter, he calls him our beloved fellow worker. We're partners. Receive him as you receive me. So not only as a brother, but also as a partner in the gospel ministry. Receive him. Philemon, do you hear the unrelenting call of the gospel? Do you hear the invitation onto the deep waters? Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Reminds me of what C.S. Lewis writes, uh, come further up and further in. Like, keep going. Your legal rights, cast them aside. The norms of your social class, relegate them further up, further in. Now, Paul continues verses 18 and 19. He says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So what he's getting at is impute to me the debt that is owed. The Greek word that's used here for the word change is the same word that Paul uses to describe in Romans how Jesus was charged or imputed our debt on his account. It's a legal term. It is whatever was owed to us in our sin and brokenness and death, it was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And Paul is using the exact same language to say whatever was owed to you, put that on my account. I'll take it. And he even says, I'm writing this with my own hand. So Paul is telling Philemon, if you have, the, you have the opportunity to rest in a metaphor of the gospel right now, if Onesimus stole from you, if he violated your rights, if he could be punished for what he has done, charge that debt onto my account. Just as your debt, Philemon, was put on the cross with Jesus. Whatever debt is owed to you, put it on me. Put it on my tab. Now, I love the way that he ends this though, right? Right there, he says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Because it's likely that Paul led Philemon to Christ. So like, you know, like you, if we're actually getting into the picky of who owes who, you actually owe me like everything. But like, you can go ahead and put that on my account for sure. I'll take that too. But he's getting in saying, we have the opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. And then he ends it with verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Allow me to see the gospel on display in your life by your response. I want to see it. I want to be refreshed and reminded of the beauty of the gospel here. Will you do it? 
Will you participate? And that's what we get to do. Whenever we see one another standing in the gap and doing the implications of the gospel every day in everyday life, when you share the gospel, when you do acts of justice and mercy, when you are loving your neighbor as yourself, we have the opportunity to be refreshed in the spirit. We have the opportunity to be refreshed in Christ by seeing the gospel on display in one another's lives. Now, Paul ends in 21 and 22. We'll hold it here. Confident of your obedience. So I'm not like, I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but for love's sake, I'm gonna appeal to you, but confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. (laughs) He just said, receive him back as a beloved brother. You're gonna do more than that, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure of it. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be really cool. It's gonna be great. Um, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. Also prepare, (laughs) I'm gonna come and chill with you for a little bit. It's gonna be great. (sighs) He is so confident that Philemon will receive the unrelenting urge of the gospel. He will take the challenge. He will receive his legal slave as his true brother in the forever family of God. He will grow in maturity. He will not see the brokenness of the institution of slavery that he has participated in and look away unchanged. Oh, and by the way, I'm coming over. So can you make sure the bed's nice and tidy for me? Now, this is the only book of the New Testament where the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not explicitly mentioned. So the gospel is not explicitly spelled out in those terms. This is the only book in the New Testament where that happens. Now, it's hard to believe that that is not intentional because instead of Paul being a gospel voice in this, because this is accompanied by the book of Colossians, where the gospel is about 15 times over declared in explicitly, what he's doing in this letter to Philemon is he is showing the implications of the gospel, gospel presence, gospel culture on display. I mean, imagine Philemon, you get off your cushion, you walk up towards Onesimus, you throw your arms around your brother and you say, my beloved brother, what does that tell the biblical community of the gospel? Imagine, Philemon, the next day you and Onesimus, you're walking through the market as as brothers, as co-workers for the cause of the gospel. You're talking about life, you're joking, you're enjoying this new relationship for the first time. What do you think other non-believers will see when they watch you and Onesimus acting in this manner? What will it say about the truth of the gospel you have believed? See, they will see the effects of the gospel in the real world, not just about change in belief system, even though that is included in it, but it's the radical change that has taken root into every aspect of life. So I'll ask again, is there a right that you have, a hobby you enjoy, a habit you partake in, a dream that you have refused to allow God to have a handle on? Maybe it's something sinful, Maybe it's neutral. Maybe it's good. But if God challenged you to hand it over to him, would you listen? Do you hear the unrelenting call of the gospel calling you into deeper waters? Maybe it's a call into new spaces of ministry, challenging you to evaluate every aspect of your life. Is there a way that you could be demonstrating greater love for God or love for people? I'd imagine the answer is yes because I know for me, it definitely is. But like Paul to Philemon, I'm not just talking about the theoretical here. 
I'm talking about the realities of your life. How is the spirit of God challenging you with the unrelenting call of the gospel? See, the trouble is that we are so often convinced of how the Holy Spirit should be convicting somebody else. And we rarely take the time and have the true humility to realize that the call of the gospel is truly unrelenting. You don't graduate from discipleship school with Jesus, which means that if you are not being challenged into deeper waters, I would argue that you have gone, if you believe that you think you have gone far enough, I would argue that the call didn't stop. You just stopped listening. And I'm pointing the finger at myself in this. But I don't want that to be my story. I don't want that to be your story. I don't want it to be the, community, the story of our community. I want our community to be one of radical abandon to Jesus, where there is nothing that we do not submit to the Lordship of Christ. That everything we say, that's yours, take it. And then we go back next year, that's yours, take it. Over and over again, that there is nothing that we do not keep away from him. You've heard this before. But I need it again. I need it again. And I'd imagine you do too. Imagine if that was the reality we rested in that we'd remember that, the, that Jesus doesn't just come with an unrelenting challenge though. He also comes with an unrelenting presence. And his presence is so beautiful and wonderful. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. His yoke is easy and his heart is gentle and lowly for those who follow in his steps. Imagine if we rested in that reality. Imagine if we allowed him to transform us from the inside out. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do tonight. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come on up. And I'm going to ask us to, to participate in a prayer practice that comes from the Puritans um, hundreds of years ago. It's a simple one. I promise it's not going to be too weird or anything. Um, but here's what I would love for you to do um, if, if you would uh, engage with me in this. So the pot, you can look at what I'm doing. It has three posture changes in it, okay? So the first is emptying. So all you do is when you're praying, you just pray with your hands in front of you. And you just, and it's just a posture of surrender. Like, God, I wanna give you everything. So I put it in my hands first. And you just ask God to reveal anything in your mind that he would want to challenge you into right now. And then after that posture, all you're gonna do is flip your hands over. And that is the act of true surrender that you are dumping that down. You're like, I surrender to you. And then you flip them back over, back into a a posture of receiving. God, would you fill this up now? Would you remind me of the goodness of the gospel? Would you remind me of the goodness of your love for me? Would you remind me of what is truest about me? And that's it. So hands up, hands down, hands up. Got it? Like that. All right, cool. All right, so all I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna give us um, a, a couple minutes where we'll just sit in silence Um, over this one, okay? Um, So I'm just going to, I'll just kind of give some prompts every like 30 seconds or so. All right, go ahead and now let's move into the next posture, okay? So Father, would you speak to us right now as we put our hands up, asking you to bring to our mind anything, everything that we need to be handing over to you tonight, each relationship, each dream, each hobby, each hope. 
Father, we turn our hands over in a posture of surrender. We give all this to you. Help us to do that. Father, we flip our hands back over in a posture of receiving. Remind us of the goodness of the gospel. Father, I ask that you would speak to your kids, brothers and sisters who have gathered together to worship you, to make you known. Would you challenge us? Would you lift us up? Would you bind us near to you? Would you encourage our very souls tonight? God, I think the brokenness that I live in every day and the ways that I fail. Lord, help me, help us to surrender to you and to receive the strengthening that only can come from you, not by our self-will, but by your gospel, by your spirit's power that we receive. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.